We've been uh, working our way for quite some time now through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And Paul's letter to the Ephesians was most likely a letter that was written with the intention of circulating among all the churches in the region of Ephesus. And uh, so it's a letter to the church, and it's a letter about the church. Uh, if you read the book of Ephesians, you are reading Paul's theology of the body of Christ. Now, of course, there's things we could learn from the rest of Scripture about the body of Christ. This isn't the only place, but this is the place where his attention is focused on the life of this new community formed by the sacrifice of Christ. And we've come to uh, the discussion in chapter 6, a discussion we typically give the title Spiritual Warfare, although the word war is not mentioned in this text, but it's a pretty good analogy. This is the passage where Paul teaches us about the armor of God that we are called upon to put on in order to stand against an attack. And the, the attacker is Satan himself. Well, Satan and uh, his crew, maybe you could say. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So we put on this armor to take our stand against the attack of the devil. And last time, we uh, studied, well, we looked at at least the uh, five elements of armor that we put on. And before that, we talked about what is Satan's objective in attacking? What is he trying to do? He is trying to do what he has always tried to do since he himself fell from God's presence, which is to combat all of God's purposes. Well, I think we could make it more simple, actually. What has Satan always tried to do with reference to humanity? And it's a, it's a simple one-word answer, and that word is alienate. Okay, it's a big word, <laughs> but it's just one word, alienate, separate, break fellowship, destroy relationship, especially between any human being and God. His goal is simple. Separate us from God. So he told Eve that, uh, you know, they don't really need God. They could serve as God for themselves. Be like him. Of course, God made them like him already. But, The way God made them was to be like Him by being with Him. So Satan wants to destroy by alienating. And God's already announced that alienation from God has another name, which is death. So the day they ate of it, they surely did die. Separated from God turning away from relying on God's provision to relying on themselves or whatever else. Satan doesn't really mind what you rely on as long as it's not him. And in this age, Satan's principal goal is to separate people from God by whatever means can be used in order to keep people from being restored to fellowship with God by trusting in Christ and what Christ has done for them. To ignore 
The grace of God is his goal. Simple. To keep people who are alienated, alienated. And to keep people who have been reconciled from walking in that. To distract us, those of us who are Christians, those of us who have been reconciled to fellowship with God in Christ, well, that is a magnificent source of strength, power, provision of all things needed for living in this life and in the life to come is provided to us in Christ. Scripture says, how can he who gave us his only son not along with him freely give us all things? We have a wealth of power, of truth, of Christ. And so we can walk, we could walk boldly with confidence in Christ, not in ourselves, but confidence in Christ. To walk with courage, to live boldly in this world with the truth. And so if, this, if Satan can disrupt that, he will. Because Christians living boldly in this world with the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is how those alienated people might get reconciled. And that is the thing he is trying to prevent. So his goal with us also is to Try to get us to separate from God in this day-to-day life that we live. You know, we can't actually be separated from God. We're reconciled to God. We have this fellowship. We enjoy this relationship. But we can be distracted so he can distract us by accusing us of sin. Or by telling us how good and righteous we are apart from God. He can convince you of your own goodness and value, or he can tear it down. It doesn't matter whichever way will work, he'll use. Well, I don't want to repeat last week's message entirely. But that is the enemy we're dealing with. And it's a simple battle. And the battle is about faith in Christ. It is not about anything else but faith in Christ. So it's to try to keep us from living by faith. And it's to try to keep the lost people from seeing Christ and trusting Christ. So we talked about our armor. Our armor uh, is truth, a belt we wrap around our waist. Uh, Our battle is righteousness, a breastplate that protects us. Our 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 armor is shoes we wear that keep us ready and able to move in this gospel enterprise in which we are engaged. Readiness in the good news, the gospel of peace. Peace, reconciliation with God and with each other. It's a shield of faith, a shield of trusting Christ and a helmet of salvation, Christ. All of these pieces of armor are just names of Christ. So what we're putting on is Christ. But then there's a question. What if a group of soldiers... This is kind of a funny idea. What if there was a group of soldiers? And I like to imagine, since we're talking about armor, I like to imagine like medieval soldiers, you know, with swords. Oh, but what if they didn't have swords? What if all they had was armor? What if all the soldiers in a battle on our side, all the soldiers on our side, went into battle and all they did was put on armor? And they didn't carry any weapons. That would be a funny thing to behold, I think. 
They'd be out there dodging stuff. And stuff might bounce off of their armor and that might keep them safe, but where's the battle? You see, in Satan's attack against us, there's a battle going on. There's a thing he's trying to achieve, and that is to prevent people from knowing God in Christ. We are pictured here as warriors in that battle also. So if all we did was put on this armor, well, it's not much of a battle. So there's a weapon. How about that? Here it is in Ephesians 6. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the sword is the Word of God, and it's the Spirit's sword. Interesting that it's the Spirit's sword. So when you get a hold of the Spirit's sword, you're not the only one that has a hold of it. But we take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, when Jesus was uh, attacked by the devil, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4. You remember what he did? Now, honestly, I think the main point of that story in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus does battle with Satan and comes out victorious, the main point is he comes out victorious in a battle that we would lose. That's really the main point. Jesus won already. But... When he went to battle, do you remember how he did it? The tempter came, this is Matthew 4, verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, prove it. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Oh, we might want to remember this was after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. You ever done any fasting? Ever gotten anywhere near 40 days? Some of you may have. 40 days fasting. So he might have wanted some loaves of bread. Here's how Jesus responded to the devil. You probably know this already. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Every word. And what did he say? It is written. And he says that in, in response to each of these temptations he endures. It is written. Jesus has the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and he deploys it against his enemy, the devil, in this instance. And he says in the process... We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, Jesus is saying something interesting. By the way, he's quoting the Old Testament. It is written. But he's saying something very interesting. Life, life comes from the mouth of God. The words of God. Hmm. So that's the sword, the Word of God. In Romans chapter 10, we read this, verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it's written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed it? what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. How do we engage the battlefield of someone's mind and heart for faith? The Word. The Word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of God, the Word of Christ. In uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 12, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly, brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. How were you born again? By the Word of God. The good news is a word. The gospel, the thing that is the thing, <laughs> the thing that makes Christians is a bit of news, a word to be announced. And so how are, how are we born again? Through the living and abiding Word of God. All flesh is like grass, he goes on, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. How do we define victory? We've talked about how Satan defines victory. How do we define victory? Like this, people reconciled to God in Christ by faith and consequently enjoying eternal life. People come to God in Christ by faith and then enjoy eternal life. This is eternal life, Jesus said. This is the definition of eternal life, Jesus said that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just about how long you live. It's about what you're doing. And what you're doing is knowing God in Christ. That's life. To be in fellowship with God is to be alive. To be alienated from God is to be dead. And so we have life in Christ already. This is the definition of our victory. It is victory means to see people reconciled to God in Christ. How do we wield this sword? Well, I just take this clue from Jesus. How do we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, like this? It is written. That's how. It is written. We say what's written. We say what's written. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, there's this verse that talks about the Word of God as a sword. You know it, I think.
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The sword of the Spirit. The verse before that verse says this, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What was the disobedience? They did not trust what God said. That's it. God said, this promised land is for you. Go on in. And they said, but what about those big guys there that are going to defend it? We'll never get it from them. And God said, I'll get it for you. Don't worry. Just go. And they said, no. And so God said, and they did not believe. So when Hebrews exhorts us to enter that rest, it's saying, don't Disobey like those people. Believe what God says. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon, a skilled surgeon. It will show you who you really are for your benefit. Second Timothy chapter two. Verse fifteen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handle it. Oh, so there's a sword and you have to rightly handle it. You have to develop the skill of using this sword. In chapter 3, 2 Timothy. Verse 16. All Scripture, all the things written, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In chapter 4, of 2 Timothy. This is the text we read earlier. Preach the Word. Now, 2 Timothy was written to a preacher. So the rest of us, we think, oh, well, preaching is for preachers. Well, and the word preach sounds uh, preachy. Do you ever go to a movie or watch something on television and go, ah, I didn't like it that much. It was kind of preachy. We don't think of that as a good thing. Preachiness. But this word is simple. It just means proclaim, announce, announce. Let's use that. Announce the word. And in this context, the word is the gospel of Christ. Here's the thing. Everything written in this book is aimed at the gospel of Christ. Even the parts of it that are not gospel are aimed at Christ. Did you know that Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, if you read Moses correctly, you'd recognize me because Moses was writing about me. So when you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, who is the subject? Jesus. 
Preach the word. Be ready (laughs) in season and out of season. When it's well received and not so well received. Preach the word. That's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. In John chapter 15, that great text about uh, abiding in the vine, I just want you to notice a detail out of that text in John 15. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words... Abide in you. If you are connected to me and my words live in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That seems like a crazy thing to promise. Really, whatever I wish? But the security for Christ in that, because I could wish for some really dumb, foolish stuff, is if my words abide in you, if you, if your life is sourced in me and directed by my words, then what you want is what I would like to give you. And I will. And he says, by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. If we want fruitful ministry, if we want victory in the field of the battle for faith, then we abide in him and his words abide in us. We wield the sword of the Spirit. How do we do that? Well, simple. Faithful declaration. Faithful declaration of the word of Christ to people. Accompanied by the work of the Spirit. Faithful declaration from me, accompanied by the work of the Spirit, in the life of a person, leads that person to faith in Christ. Now, the faithful declaration of the Word comes in two parts. I like to think of these as the two edges of the two-edged sword. The Bible doesn't make me say that, but that's what I like to say, just to be clear. The first edge is the law. The law is about what God requires from people. The law of God. Thou shalt not covet. We're toast. We're done. I don't even need to proceed to the hard commandments. I can look around and say, well, I've never killed anyone. That one's, maybe that's the easy commandment. Thou shalt not commit a murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Hmm, that's getting a little harder. Thou shalt not even want to covet your neighbor's wife. Well, and forget about wives. Covet anything. Want something that doesn't belong to you. Not stealing. Uh, Maybe I'll pull that off. I'm not going to ask, but has anyone pulled that off? I will tell you, I have not pulled that off. I have not obeyed that commandment my whole life. I have occasionally stolen. But then the text says, thou shalt not covet. That means you should not even want to steal. You should not even see something that doesn't belong to you and go, ah. The law condemns every last one of us. We are not able to keep it because we are not walking with God. And when we're walking as a unredeemed person.
The Scripture says that the ministry of the Spirit, this is in John chapter 16, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the instrument of the Word, the sword of the Spirit in that conviction is the law, which leaves us all destitute before God, every last one of us. And that is good. Because my problem is I think I'm okay by myself before God. You could ask almost anyone, do you think you're going to go to heaven when you die? And almost everyone will say yes. And then you say, well, why do you think that? And they will say something like, because I'm not that bad of a person. I will tell you this, no one has ever or ever will go to heaven because they're not that bad of a person. It will never happen. The Scripture says this explicitly and directly. There is no justification before God by the works of the law. It cannot, it does not, it will never happen. The purpose of giving us the law is not so that we will behave ourselves and earn our place before God. The purpose of the giving of the law is to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And to leave us bare and in need. Galatians says it leads us to Christ. And, you know, when you preach like this, it sounds like God might be mean. And I guess if the sword had only the one blade, that's right. But the sword has the other side, the other edge, which is the gospel, the good news. And if the law is about what God requires us to do, the gospel is about what God has done for us. And the corresponding ministry of the Holy Spirit is to open our eyes to see Jesus Christ as He is and trust in Him and what He has done for us. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4 where The Spirit works to open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the Gospel is the announcement of what God has done. And it is the remedy to the need we experience when we're under the sword of the Spirit in the form of the law. And we find ourselves desperate before God, unable to produce the righteousness that He requires. What has God done? God has joined us as one of us in the man Jesus. God, the eternal Son, became flesh, is one of us, is present to be seen so that He can say, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father joined us as one of us. God God in Christ, the man in Jesus, the man, has perfectly fulfilled the law. That list of things we cannot do, He did. Perfectly fulfilled the law entirely as a man on behalf of people, on behalf of me and you. He has entirely fulfilled the law. His obedience is perfect. And so when he ran into Satan and Satan said, just bow down to me. Prove you're the Son of God by doing what I say. Well, Jesus didn't fall for that. Jesus survived the temptation that we fail. And of course, there was more than one occasion. 
Jesus endures the temptation to unrighteousness to the point of death. We would never get that far. We give in easy. We're not that big of a challenge for the devil most of the time. Jesus is victorious over sin. He fulfills the law entirely. And then, having done that, he satisfies the judgment for sin for us in his death. When Jesus, the man who had no sin, died, he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He satisfied the judgment for us. He made propitiation for sin. That's the theology word. So there, all the condemnation that was due to me, he has received on my behalf. Of course, that's not the whole story. He also rose from the dead. What has God done for me? Well, he became my brother as a human being. He fulfilled the law perfectly on my behalf. He gave his life a sacrifice for my sin, and he rose from the dead so that now he remains a man. He rose in a man. The man rose. The human being that died is the human being that rose. And he is now a man seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for me. Saying about me, he is with me. And so, because he intercedes for me, he invites me. Because I go with Christ, I can go into the actual presence of the living God. I can stand before the throne of grace and look for help and mercy and provision and whatever else I think of. I can treat God like my actual father. And there's no correction. I come in there and I say, Abba, he says, yeah, come on in. What do you got? Sit up here. What's, what's on your mind? That's what God has done for me. I, didn't, I can't go in there. But if I'm with Christ, God's eternal Son, <laughs> I can walk in there like I own the place and receive a warm welcome and not judgment. That's what God has done. He reigns as king and lord and brother. You know, in the book of Hebrews, it says, he looks at me and he's not ashamed to call me brother. I've got brothers and sometimes I'm ashamed to call them brothers. No, I'm not, I'm, that's not really true. That, but there have been days... And I'm a little afraid that the opposite might also be true. But Jesus is happy to call me his brother. No shame. Because he has done away with the shame. He has borne the shame. He reigns as king and lord and brother. And he is coming again to fulfill all the promises of God made to me and to everyone else, so that in the end, I will have all things in him. I will inherit everything in him. I am a co-heir with Christ. That's what God has done. That's the second edge of this sword. That's the gospel. And so as we wield the, Lord, the sword, we are making a clear, faithful declaration of the word of Christ the law, and the gospel. You wield the law so that people will come to understand their situation. 
And you share the gospel so that people will see God's, God's provision for them in Christ. Now, here's the thing. You can't wield a sword that you haven't picked up. And that's why the text says, pick up the sword. Pick up the sword. Start practicing using the sword. Pick it up. Before you can wield the sword, you've got to pick it up. Before you can say, it is written, don't you need to know what has been written? Luckily today, it's really easy to find out what's been written. I have this, you know, this app. I can look at the Bible in almost any language of the whole wide world. I can look at it even in the language it was originally written in, if I know how to read it. The Bible is more available today than it ever has been. What has been written and how well do you know it? Before you can say it is written, you need to know what is written. So, start reading, or keep reading. And by the way, when you start reading, there's bumps. You're going to have to figure stuff out. So you might, reading might not be all there is to it. You might actually have to study. Most of us read the Bible, most of us Christians, we read the Bible in a very shallow way. And I think, good, read shallow. Just look at it. Figure out what's in there. If you know what has been written, when the need arises, you can say, it is written. If you don't know what has been written, it's going to be hard for you to say what has been written. So, a little commercial break now. On the table, I have made you a bunch of these. This says Bible reading plan. So, if you need one, they're there. There's only 40 copies, which isn't even one apiece here. So, you know, you might want to run right back there and grab yours. And here's a simple goal. The simple goal. Get more familiar with what is written in the Bible. You don't need to figure it out as you go. Just find out what's in there. That's all. For this kind of reading plan, and this is like read through the whole Bible in one year if you check a box every day. You don't even have to start at the beginning. You can start in the middle and there's a little box you can check. I read that. It couldn't be more easy. <laughs> But there is an enemy who would rather you didn't do this. But if you know what is in there, then you can say what is in there. And if you want to wield the sword, you got to pick it up. So pick it up. But here's the thing. God doesn't just speak His Word. His Word became flesh and dwelt among us. so that we beheld His glory in His only begotten Son. We deal with His Word in person when we deal with Jesus. And so I believe the skillful deployment of the sword of the Spirit includes more than just speaking what is written. I think it also includes enacting it together. There's a great text in the book of James, first chapter of the book of James. You will have heard this before. Starts in verse 22 of the book of James, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is 
a hearer of the Word and not a doer. He's like a man who looks carefully at his face in a mirror, looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. What if you... I'll tell you, this is a horror story. What if I had gone in front of my mirror this morning? I did do that. And done nothing about it. I'm telling you. you know, okay, stop picturing that. <laughs> That's somebody who just hears it and doesn't enact it. And this word doer is the same as the word uh, for he, we are his new creation in Christ. Uh, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. It's the word, it's based on the same word we get the English word poem from. It's like a craft, a work of art, uh, a thing done, a thing produced. And so I read this as don't just read the play, put it on. I took a class in Shakespeare when I was in college. I know. Uh, but anyway, I took this class and I learned all about Shakespeare and I couldn't, I started to read it and I'm like, I can't even follow this. It's written in some version of English that I don't know. Then I figured out that in the library at the university I was at, they had the, all of the plays of Shakespeare on video. As in, acted by actors. So I took the book and I went to the library and I watched the play while I was reading the book and suddenly it all made sense. Suddenly I could understand that crazy archaic language. Suddenly I could see it for real, acted out by the actors. They didn't just read it, they figured out how to put it on. And so when we're called upon to be doers of the Word, we are called upon to not just know the words, but to live the words in the, into the world. And since we're talking about the Gospel, I'm talking about we're the people who rest in Christ, like we read about in Hebrews. We're the people who aren't anxious because we know the Savior. Things that should trouble us, that should derail us emotionally, don't. Because we are secure in Christ. We rest in Him. My eternal place in Christ is, is just completely secure. There's it can't be taken from me. I just have it. And then if we read in Ephesians earlier, we read about how uh, Paul prayed for the ministry of the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That we would be strengthened with power by His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. So that we would be fully occupied by the person of Christ. That's enacting the play. I live my life in reference to Christ. I look at the people around me with the eyes of Christ, Paul says. We don't see any man the way we used to. The love of Christ now compels us. The love of Christ now informs how I view everyone. We live as the body of Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love, we grow together and we grow up into the one new man. Speaking the truth, that's the sword of the Spirit. So we build this community where the love of Christ is visible and real. And Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by the way you love each other. That's putting on the play. So when someone comes in this door on a Sunday morning and they've never been here before, they see something and they go, oh, yeah, these people are really 
resting in Jesus. I can tell because of the way they take care of each other, the way the affection they have for one another, the body of Christ. In Romans 6, we read about living the new life where because I died with Christ, my, I, I was somehow united with Christ in His death, and so now I have been raised in His new life with Christ, and so now I have an opportunity to live in a different way, to live in that way that used to be impossible for me, to live by the wisdom of God's law, not by the imposition of it. And so the law itself gets flipped upside down. And now I don't look at it as a difficult, hard, horrible thing or I'll be judged thing. I look at it as, oh, so that's how I do it. I live a new life. And so when we talk about the sword of the Spirit, we're talking about this weapon that we employ on behalf of the people around us, not against them. Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We struggle, we wield this sword on behalf of the people around us, including each other, including myself. I wield the sword by simply remembering what I know is written. And I want to pick up that sword by figuring out what is written. And then by implementing it into real life, like I'm putting on a play so that people can see the gospel in the way I live. And that doesn't mean me becoming some sort of superior example. It means me becoming an example of a humbly dependent person who rests his soul in Jesus. who knows the gospel and belongs to the God of the gospel. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Lord, we want to be the people of the book. We confess that sometimes we don't pay much attention to it. But Lord, we want to know what You say. We want to be instruments in the hand of Your Spirit on behalf of everyone around us. To make the Gospel clear. To announce the good news of what You've done for us in Christ. And to see people restored to life by the reconciling ministry of our Savior, by the work of the Spirit in their hearts, so that they see it and trust it. Thank You, Lord, for this great privilege. In Jesus' name, Amen.